This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Pontypool, Ontario, Canada's CLSY Radio Nowhere with Grant Mazzy. It's not the end of the world, folks. It's just the end of the day. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are, and where we're both kind of sick. Chris is worse than me this week. Yeah, last week it was Kelsey, this week it's me. I'm sure you can hear it in my sexy voice. Uh, anyway, this week we're talking about unconventional zombie movies with 1993's My Boyfriend's Back and 2008's Pontypool. And it's Valentine's Day. That's right. That's the theme. It's not necessarily unconventional zombie movies. I mean, it is. But both of them are Valentine's Day movies, even though one doesn't really take place on Valentine's Day, but it is about love. Mm-hmm. And the other isn't really about love, but it takes, but place. It takes place on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What 2012 slasher film is a story about an annual ritual sacrifice to appease the ancient ones? Cabin in the Woods. Correct. Yeah. All right, Kelsey. In Night of the Living Dead, what do the experts believe has caused the deceased to return to life as zombies? As hell. Had too many people. That's that's Dawn of the Dead. When there's no more room in hell, yeah. But Night of the Living Dead is not that. No, Night of the Living Dead has an actual scientific theory. Well, according to the return of the Living Dead, it was a chemical made by the government. Yes, that's not what we're talking about, though. Okay, then I have no idea. Uh, radiation from a Venus space probe that exploded in the Earth's atmosphere. I'd like to point out to you that we have not seen this movie, so it's not a not really Not for the show. We've seen question. the movie. I haven't seen it since, like, high school. Oh, wow. We need to watch it. Yeah. We're coming for you, Barbara. Co- it's coming. coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah. You're ignorant. <laughs> Again, 30-second bunnies. <laughs> All right. Kelsey. Our first movie up is 1993's My Boyfriend's Back. Love this movie. Written by Dean Lowry. This is his first writing credit, but his next credit in the same year is Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. Oh, no. Part of that is because (laughs) he was hired by Sean Cunningham, you know, the Friday the 13th guy, who actually produced this. Directed by Bob Balaban. Who is an actor, we've talked about him in the past, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He plays the owner of the network in Seinfeld. He's Phoebe Buffay's father and friends. He's in all the Christopher Guest mockumentaries. He's in Lady in the Water. But we know him as a director 
from Parents because he directed Parents. I love Parents. And one of the actors in this is from Parents. Yes. Starring Andrew Lowry, Tracy Lind, Danny Zorn, plus Matthew Fox, Cloris Leachman, Matthew McConaughey, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Jeezy crazy. This is Matthew Fox and Matthew McConaughey's first film. Who's Matthew Fox? Seriously? Yeah. He's the he's the bully, the the jock. Her boyfriend? Her boyfriend, yes. Is he famous? Yes. Mainly from Party of Five, but also Lost. He's like the main character in Lost. You're talking about two shows I did not watch. Wow. 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 <laughs> uh, send your complaints to our box. Interestingly, the movie was going to be directed by Adam Marcus, but he was a first-time director, and since this is a Disney movie, it's Touchstone, but that's where they put their non-Disney Disney movies, uh, they didn't want to hire him because he was a first-time director. So, in order to make up for that, Sean Cunningham hired him to direct... Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. Just thought that was a fun little connection there between the writer and the well, director. That movie's awful, so not doing him much yeah. props. We'll get to that movie, don't worry. The music is also by Henry Manfredini, who does the Friday the 13th music. We also talked about how he did House. What is My Boyfriend's Back about? A teenager is killed um, when he jumps in front of a bullet to save the girl that he's been in love with since the first grade. And then he gets to come back to take her to the prom. Yeah. It is free on Epic's TV anywhere. It's $3 to rent pretty much everywhere, but it's like $18 at its cheapest to buy. Like Jesus. We should have bought it. I probably should have bought it. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of answers the question. Should people watch this movie? I think yes. Yeah. Some people might think it's dumb, but I love it. It's absolutely dumb. It is absolutely dumb. Uh, but this is a movie that everyone saw when it was out on home video and when it was playing on TV. Like, if you're our age, you've probably already seen this movie. Like, nobody didn't know about it. But it has been just relegated to obscurity since then. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I've gone, like, my whole life since seeing this movie totally conflating two different things that happen in this movie as a single joke. And I've been carrying that with me as what my boyfriend's back is for the longest time. It's just a silly movie with silly jokes. And here's one of them. That joke isn't actually in the movie and we'll get to it when, when we talk about it, it kind of is, but it's not. Uh, but what I did forget is just how fucking nuts this movie is. And in just a glorious way. I love it. It's If you liked Parents, you're going to love this. Yeah, but I'd this say is a little, it's better than Parents. This is a little f- more fun, a little more silly than Parents yeah. is, but I I love the tone. I just love yes. it. It's my kind of humor. Uh-huh, absolutely. And just to be clear, this is not the 1989 made-for-TV movie you can find on YouTube about an all-female singing group from the 60s reuniting for a TV special. Yes, this is not that. Starring But I'm Judith very Light. excited to see it once I saw the cast. <laughs> we started, we're like, this isn't the movie. The, the movie this? starts, and it's, it's the actual song, My Boyfriend's Back, which I... My entire life thought was in 
It's not even in movie. this movie. Yeah. It's not in it, not even once. But so the movie starts by a girl group singing it, and then you see all these pictures of the girl group, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I don't remember this being the beginning. <laughs> so yes, be warned. But you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1993's My Boyfriend's Back. They say you only get one chance at life. But for childhood sweethearts, Missy and Johnny, true love will never die. My boyfriend's back. He came back from the dead for me. He's a stinking zombie, you idiot. He may be dead. Right. But his heart still beats for the girl that he loves. I would love to go to the prom with you. Damned active for a dead guy. My boyfriend's back. Rated PG 13. All right, Kelsey, we have another comedy horror movie with a comic book motif. Can you get us started? How does My Boyfriend's Back begin? It does begin with a comic book intro showing you Missy McCloud and how much he's in love with her. It's narrated by our main character. Johnny, played by Andrew Lowry. The movie was actually going to be called Johnny Zombie, but they ended up changing that kind of at the last minute. And maybe that's why the song isn't in there. I assume. And we see this flashback to when he was in the first grade and how he sat there at Missy McLeod's birthday party and he had this gift in his hand that he really wanted to give to her, but he was too nervous and in the moment when he could have given it to her, something happens and every all the kids run. Somebody and says, it's cake. And cake, yay. Yeah. And so they all leave. And then he ends up getting kind of headlocked or something by this kid. And he goes, what are you looking at, dirt bag? What are you looking at, dirt bag? And that ends up being... Philip Seymour Hoffman? Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Yeah. Who, by the way, plays his role of Chuck Bronsky to the rafters. Well, he was an excellent actor. It's it's a real shame. It is a bold choice. He knows exactly what kind of movie he's in. And he's not afraid to do weird shit. Yes. (laughs) Uh, He explains that he's been helplessly in love with her ever since. And how today, like the week of prom, his senior year, is the best day of his life because she just broke up with her six-year-long relationship with Buck. Who is Matthew Fox. Apparently. Jesus Christ. So he wakes up and he's going to have to go to school and he's really excited. He thinks today's the day. He's going to finally tell her how he feels, give her the present, fall in love, go to prom. And we meet his mom and dad, played by Mary Beth Hurt, who was in Parents. Pretty much the same character. Uh Less sinister, obviously, in this one. But loves her son. Yeah. And would do anything for him. Uh-huh. And Edward Herman, who plays Mr. Dingle, who I know, I know mostly for whatever reason he is locked in my brain as the dad from Richie Rich. But probably more relevant to this show, he's in The Lost Boys. Yes. So, yeah, there's that. Yes. He's been in a lot of things. You know him. Yeah. And they're like the perfect parents. They love their son and they're they're very, they've got that whole 50s thing going, which is why I said, if you like parents, if you like the tone they went for there, you're going to like the tone The whole movie has like this mid-century vibe to it. Even when they go into flashbacks, it's like still kind of mid-century. Like it's, 
It's interesting. It does not place this movie in a specific time, and I think it does that on purpose. I love that. Yeah. I love the aesthetic. She's always trying to get him to eat food, and he never will, uh, which is going to come into play later. Uh As he's leaving, his dad goes, don't cut through our neighbor's yard. We don't want them to think ill of us. And then, of course, he cuts through the lady's yard, and he goes, I hope you don't feel ill of me. (laughs) We get to meet his best friend. Who he call? he's like, he's a dick, but I like him. Eddie. Eddie's pretty funny. Yeah. Played by Danny Zorn. Has he been in anything else? He's a character actor from other things. Blast from the Past, Indecent Proposal, IQ. It's just funny because he looks a lot like a guy I knew in high school, so it's just weird. (laughs) He's a dick, but I like him. Anyway, he sees Missy and and he's like, hey, you know, you look really beautiful today. You know, you're... Physically perfect in a now available sort of way. Uh And she's just like, thanks? Hey, Missy. I just wanted to say you look really nice today. In a physically perfect, newly available kind of way. Thanks. And she's obviously like the most popular, most beautiful girl in school. So she's probably used to guys having crushes on her. But for whatever reason, she's actually a very nice person and is actually really nice to Johnny, even though her boyfriend is an asshole to him. Like her boyfriend's the the bully of the school. Yeah, this is Tracy Lind. She's in Class of 99 and Fright Night Part 2. <laughs> so he's about to ask her. To go to the prom, and then her boyfriend walks up. A big sort of apology for being such a doofus. I can't live without you. I don't even remember what he did to get her to break up with like him. Like, he he did, he, he oh, stood he, her up and yes. then didn't call her. Yeah, just like in the beginning of Valley Girl. Yeah. Try two days with no phone call. <laughs> What's my problem? Try two days and no phone call. Kelsey can quote the entirety of Valley Girl. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I'm so sure. And he says, I'm so sorry. Will you come Will you come back to me? And she's like, of course I will, silly. And then as they're leaving, she says, see you, Johnny. And that's when Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, what are you looking at, dirtbag? Uh-huh. What are you looking at? Nothing. Dirtbag. Making us know that that's the same kid. Uh-huh. Um, so... Later that day, apparently she works at a convenience store, and he's convinced his friend Eddie to go in and pretend to hold her up. Classic. This is a classic scheme, I guess you could call it. Yeah, where you try to establish a fake scenario where somebody might be in danger so you can stand up and be the hero and get them to like you. And this is not the first time we've seen this in a horror movie. No. Can you think of the time that we saw this before? No, I can't think of the specific movie. In Better Watch Out. That was his whole plan. Oh, yeah. And then it goes south. Spoilers. And then he goes crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we already did it. Yeah, but people might not have seen it yet. Eh, It's not that good. I thought it was all right. I know. I know you liked it. (laughs) It was just okay. Anyway, Eddie tries to talk him out of it. He's like, this is desperate and this is sick. <laughs> and I'm uh-huh. really, I'm really worried about you. And he's like, just shut up and show me what you've got. So he does the whole like, stick him up or whatever. And he's like, that's what you call menacing? So he goes in and he's purchasing things. 
while he's doing this, his friend Eddie is like, well, I guess I'd better try it out. So he takes longer than expected. Uh So because of that, Johnny is forced to, like, keep buying more and more shit. Uh Okay. While this is happening, a guy pulls up in front of the convenience store. (laughs) And at first, Eddie's like, oh, fuck. Like, first of all, it's embarrassing. But Uh also, secondly... What if he thinks I'm actually trying to rob the store? Yeah. What are you doing? You're going to rob the store? And he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> and then he goes, no, you're not. I am. Uh-huh. So, but and apparently because Eddie had a squirt gun. Yes. Which is why Johnny is not afraid of the gun when he goes inside. Now, the guy who walks up takes his mask. His balaclava. But apparently he has his own Gun. Yes. Well, he pulls his gun on Eddie in order to get the mask from him and send him away. Oh. He was was already planning on robbing the place. He was just going to show up and rob it. But so we cut back to Johnny inside, and there's a funny line where Missy's like, anything else I can get for you? Chinese checkers, a birdhouse, perhaps. (laughs) And he's like, no, I think I'm okay. And that's when the guy comes in. So Johnny does his whole, like, you can't talk to her like that and like tries to get in the way sees Eddie outside and Eddie's like, it's not me. It's not me. And so he's going to stop, but then he pulls a gun on Missy. And so Johnny jumps in front of the gun Mm -hmm. and gets, he really does do something selfless to save her. Yes. So it's not just that he thinks it's a fake gun. He does intentionally save her. So he gets shot. Eddie hits the guy over the head with a bottle of ketchup, which Uh you think is going to come into the story, but it's not. Because I thought it was going to be like, oh, he gets splattered with ketchup and thinks he's dead, but he's not. But that Uh is not part of it at all. Missy jumps over the counter and is holding him in his last dying moments. And she's just like, in shock. He's going to die. He died for her. And Fanny goes, will you go to the prom with me? And Uh she just says, Sure. Yeah. And it's really funny. He looks at Eddie, gives him the thumbs up, and then slides <laughs> down and dies. And it's really funny. Cut to his funeral, where the parents are crying. And as they, like, put, like, their final, like, flowers on his grave, the dad's like, be nice to God. Yeah. <laughs> the mom gives him, like, a peanut butter bologna sandwich. It's nasty, whatever it is. <laughs> Goodbye, son. Be nice to God. I made you bologna and mustard. With the edges cut off. Just the way you like it. You eat all of it, you hear me? You hear your mother? That's when Missy throws one last rose and says, I wish we could have gotten to know each other. Mm -hmm. Later that night... And it's, again, told in the story, in, like, a comic book story. And we've got the fun sound effects of a graveyard. We've got the mist of a graveyard. And he comes up, punches through the the dirt with the rose that she gave him. Uh-huh. And it just totally reminded me. So a lot of people might be upset that we didn't do My Boyfriend's Back with warm bodies but guess what there's another great movie that we can do with warm bodies uh and this is the moment that reminded me of it idle hands oh my god idle hands you blew off heaven to kick it with me 
Oh my god, Idle Hands. It's a fantastic movie. So we can do that with Warm Bodies. Oh, good good decision. So he gets up out of his grave, walks like a shambling zombie over to the guy who takes care of the graveyard. And the great and the guy's just like, oh. Hi, I'm Murray. Because what you find out is apparently this is a thing that sometimes happens. The last time, I think the last time was Thanksgiving, 15 years ago. And like, he's totally unfazed by this. Yes. But also Thanksgiving is funny that it's the day of the undead because... Undead cat Thanksgiving? Yes. (laughs) I even wrote, I was like, Pet cemetery. He's like, oh yeah, now you're one of the undead. And he's like, okay, well... I gotta go. I've got a date on Friday. And he's like, no, but you can't leave. You're dead. And he tells him only death waits you among the living. And he goes, but obviously I'm not dead. I feel great. I'm in love. I'm not a zombie. I'll be fine. And and after he leaves, the guy's just like, you'll find out. Mm-hmm. You'll see. So he comes home. And his parents are shocked for about two seconds. And then his mom's like, would you like something to eat? We've got plenty of food left over from the funeral. Yeah. <laughs> like, we all thought you were dead. You know, it's uh, uh, us, the mortician, the person who did the embalmment, the, the embalmer. We all thought you were dead. And he's like, well, I'm not. And they're like, oh, okay. And like, that's just it. That's the end of the conversation. You know, son, your mother and I... And the ambulance driver, and the coroner, and the embalmer were all pretty much convinced that you were dead. I got better. Huh. Well, welcome home, son. Thanks. Are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? There's, gee, there's a lot of food left over from the funeral. So then something happens where he realizes, it finally dawns on him, oh my god, I am dead. I forget what he does, but something finally shows him. No, you're you're. Oh, he dead. has a hole in his chest. Oh, that's right. Yes, he sees the the bullet hole in his chest. So then, when he goes downstairs the next morning, his mom's like, "Do you want food?" And he's like, "No, mom, I'm dead." <laughs> and they're like, "Well, then I think you should call the doctor." And so he's just, yeah. She calls the doctor and says, "Yeah, our son is dead. <laughs> Could you take a look at him?" So he leaves and goes to school, and he's late. And the teacher is like, just because you're dead does not mean you can show up whenever you feel like Uh it. So it's really funny because this did happen to the town 15 years ago. So everybody's just like, that's weird, but I guess it's okay. (laughs) So they sit down at lunch and he's just like, oh my God, this food is disgusting. How are you eating this? And Eddie's like, you've never had a problem with it before. And he goes, but fine, if you're not going to eat it, I'll take some. So he puts his arm across the table. And that's when Johnny realizes that he has hunger for flesh. But what's funny is that when he goes to bite him, Eddie says, you were just going to take a bite out of me. And Johnny's response is, it's just going to be a little bite. (laughs) What? What do you mean? What? You just tried to take a bite out of my arm. (sighs) I'm sorry, Eddie. Just gonna be a little bite. Johnny, you shouldn't be taking any bites. <laughs> this movie's so funny. Like, I love it. I love the bizarre, silly, weird, dark humor. Yes. It is, it is my humor. Uh-huh. It um, just strikes this tone that's just so great. And when he says that, Eddie's like, well, there shouldn't be any biting. <laughs> um, so he leaves. He goes to talk 
to Missy, who tries to be nice, but is very obviously uncomfortable. Yeah. Her boyfriend shows up and Philip Seymour Hoffman like pushes him. And he's like, you, you're stinking up the whole school, dead boy. We're watching you, dead boy. We don't like your kind. You're stinking up the whole school. Chuck. He's so, he's so good. So it's obviously the parallel they're making is between being a zombie is kind of the same as being a, a minority. Right. And it's a very obvious racial allegory, especially with the fact that it takes place kind of mid-century. Like, as, and especially when we get into the miscegenation stuff that comes up later on in the movie. And then all the white people start to riot over it. So then, like, she, he had asked her to go out on a date with him that night. Because she, he wanted to take her to prom, and she said, I can't go to prom with you. I said, yes, because you were dying. I have a boyfriend. And he's like, well, okay, but can I just take you out? Mm -hmm. And she's like, I have a boyfriend. But when her boyfriend takes her away, he tells her, I better not ever catch you talking to him ever again. What are people going to say? My girlfriend hanging out with a decaying kid. I don't really care what people think, and he's actually a nice guy, so cut it out. Let's go. I better not ever catch you with that dead kid again. I got a reputation. Which pisses her off. So then she turns her face over, and she she says, 8 o'clock. Mm -hmm. So he is going to take her out on a date. They go to a movie, The Midnight Hour, another zombie movie. And she gets kind of upset about how they portray zombies in movies, how unfair it is. Again parallels yeah. to racism the fact that black and uh, people of any color in a lot of especially in the 50s which this was obviously a zombie movie from olden days uh -huh. you know it portrayed people of color in a bad light and that's obviously the parallel they're drawing here i do like some of the other lines um i was like tom cruise but dead <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember who else we see in the theater here Matthew McConaughey. In his first movie role. Yes. Sees them there and kind of reports back. Is this back. first? Is this before Dazed and Confused? Yeah. Because I was always under the impression that Dazed and Confused was his first role. Well, it was his first major role. Right. But the story I had always heard about Matthew McConaughey getting into Dazed and Confused is because the director just happened to walk into a bar very early in the morning uh -huh. and saw Matthew McConaughey drunk off his ass and thought he was really funny <laughs> and said, you should be in my movie. That's what I've right. always heard. It may be right, but they came out the same year. It's not like he was famous or anything. Okay. So he's sitting in there and he's like, isn't that Bucks girl? There's a weird little moment in here where it's like, I've never had a jujube. Okay, eat some. Oh, they got stuck in my teeth. Okay, now drink some of your soda. Uh-huh. There's something magical happening in your mouth right now, isn't there? <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I've never had a jujube. So I have no idea what they're talking about. It's just like gumdrops, basically. But, I mean, the idea is, is that his sweet innocence, childlike demeanor is really intriguing to her. She, she's not used, She's used to the jocks and the posturing and all of that. And he's just this innocent, sweet guy. So then he takes her home, and now it's kind of sexy that he's the undead, because it's kind of like someone you're not supposed to be with, right? Yes. So she's like, can I touch you? And he's like, yes. And then she's like touching him. She's like, can you feel that? And he's like, yes, I can feel that. Um, and then she says, I like you. And he says, well, can I kiss you? 
And she's like, oh my gosh, you're driving me crazy. But then she's making out with his ear. And his ear comes off. His ear comes off in her mouth. Which is so disgusting. Yeah. But she's not grossed out by it. She's just like, that's not good. And that's like the tenor of the entire movie is that when crazy things happen, like coming back from the dead and ear falling off later on, what happens to Chuck? Like, nobody is grossed out. They're just like, oh, come on. Like, you know, it's it's like a minor annoyance. Yes. And that's kind of what builds the tone throughout the entire movie. Yes. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And he's like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. So he decides it's time to go to the doctor. Yes. And the doctor's like, well, yeah, you're dead, so you're going to decay. He says, okay, well, you're dead, which is unusual, because we don't normally see this much activity in a dead person. <laughs> and J- Johnny tells him, look, I almost took a bite out of my friend Eddie, and it was such the wrong thing to do. <laughs> he's very mad. <laughs> but so he's like, okay, but I'm going to need skin samples. So he just rips some skin off and gives it to <laughs> and him. the doctor's like, well, that's very disgusting, but that will work. <laughs> well, I need skin samples so I can run some tests. Look here. Well, that's very disgusting, but I guess that'll do fine. Well, and but he basically tells him he's going to completely decompose eventually over the course of, like, maybe a day. Yeah, he said, by tomorrow, you will be just a pile of stuff. Uh-huh. And he says, the only, like, unless I can find a cure for you, the only thing I can tell you is you might want to go and talk to the lady whose husband came back 15 years ago, uh-huh. which is... Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman. Frau Bruja. Yes. So he goes to her house and she's really funny. He tells her what happened about the ear. And she's like, well, that must have been embarrassing. (laughs) And she's like, look, the only option you have is to eat the flesh of the living. And he's just like, what? (laughs) I'm not going to do that. She's like, fine, you don't have to. But that's what's going to happen. Either you eat the living or you will decay. Yeah. I need to live long enough to go to the prom tomorrow night. I'll do anything. Oh, no, don't be so quick. Anything. Oh, my dear boy, you don't understand. There is something you can do, but it is a terrible thing. Tell me. Flesh of the living. The more you eat, the more time you have. Are you crazy? Nothing else you can do. There's got to be. Look, I almost took a bite out of my friend Eddie, and it was such the wrong thing to do. He's very mad. A bite will give you about 20 minutes. 20 minutes? I need a whole day. And then you'll have to eat a little more. How much more? Oh, my goodness. It's hard to say. Arm, a leg, a stomach, a foot. It's not an exact science, you know. What kind of friggin' nut are you telling me to go out and eat people? I'm not telling you to eat people. I'm saying eating the flesh of the living is buying you a little more time, but it's an awful price to pay. Well, it doesn't matter because I'm not eating anybody. Well, then you'll be dead by tomorrow. So he goes home. We didn't mention that earlier, he has a lot of dream sequences. Earlier, he had a dream sequence inside the classroom where Missy, like, 
and him have sex in front of everybody. In the in the gymnasium and everyone's cheering and the referee's like, foul, not using a regulation-sized unit. What do you mean it's not regulation-sized? <laughs> the teacher's like, most pathetic sexual fantasy I've ever seen. Yes. So in this dream, he's dreaming that all of his stuff is falling off. Like, he sneezes and his nose comes off. And Missy, in his dream, sticks it back on with gum. And then, like, they're hooking up and her arm com- his arm comes off. And then his leg comes off. And she's just like, I'm gonna go. And, and he's like, his- no, no, it's fine. And then his dick falls off yes. and rolls down his pant leg. And then everyone's shocked and surprised. And that's when he wakes up screaming. That's half of the joke that I conflated together as a child. (laughs) So, next day at school, he tries to talk to Missy again, and she's like, I've been thinking, like, if your ear came off, what if other things came off? That's the other half of this conflated joke. I always thought the joke was, when she asked him, what if other things could fall off, that she was talking about his dick, and that everyone knew it. Which he, she is. No, she looks down as like, um, like she's embarrassed to ask him about this. She doesn't look at his dick because he says, what, like my arm or something? And she's like, exactly. Like, it's very obvious she's not talking about his dick. She's worried about body parts falling off of him. But for whatever reason, I thought that that was the joke. And that symbolized my boyfriend's back for me my entire life. And then I watch it again and I'm like. The joke's not even in there. We actually see his dick fall off. That's the joke. (laughs) It's the weirdest thing. But so her boyfriend's friend sees them talking, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he's like, back off, dead boy. And he's coming after him with an axe. And it's funny. Well, he keeps coming after him with stuff. And he says, come here, you stinking dead Yahoo toucher. He says it twice, by the way. Yes. Which is obviously. ADR. ADR yeah. You can tell that he's shouting fucks and. Yeah. I don't know what else he's calling him, but you can tell that he's saying actual bad language. Mm-hmm. And they went in and ADR'd it. But yeah, so they were they were trying to get this movie to be PG-13 and not R. Yeah. So originally he's going after him with a bat. Then he sees the fire axe and goes to get the axe. But because he's an idiot, when he goes back with it over his head to try and hit Johnny with it, he instead puts it into his own head. Yeah, because it's a fire axe. It's got the blade on one end and it's got the spike on the other. You're supposed to put it over your shoulder. Yes. So I recently went axe throwing with a bunch of my guy friends for my bachelor party. And they have different types of things you can throw. And one of them is built just like this. And that's the only one that they tell you. Do not throw this two-handed. Throw You can throw everything one-handed, and you can throw everything else two-handed. Not this one. Because if you do it two-handed, it goes up behind you, and you're going to stab yourself in the back. Like, so, and then it's in this movie, except he does it in his head. Yes. But now Chuck's dead. And he's starving, and he knows that if he doesn't eat the flesh of the... Now, here's the thing. Uh-huh. It's still living flesh. It hasn't rotted yet. That's all that means? Well, yeah, because, like, think about any zombie movie. They'll kill a person and then eat the body. That's true. Okay. But so he does that, and it's like, well, he's already dead anyway. But it's like, you might have thought about moving the body. Because now it looks like he killed him to eat him. Yes. Which he did not do. So Eddie runs up, and he's just like, oh, no. (laughs) You know, colleges look at this sort of thing. (laughs) Oh. Oh, no. Oh. Hi, Eddie. 
you know, colleges look at this sort of thing. Oh. And that's when Missy runs up and she's like, oh my God, how could you? You ate Chuck. Like, I'm not going to go out with you again. Yeah. So she starts to, like, kind of be dismissive of him. Like, he, you know, he, just like in any other romantic teen movie, he might have done something that she interprets as bad, and now she's trying to give him the cold shoulder. And he's trying to get back in her good graces. Meanwhile, her father is the sheriff, so her her sheriff father shows up to handle the situation. (laughs) The reporter. the (laughs) The reporter comes up to him and says, we just received word that some sort of tragedy has happened in the high school today. He says, no, nothing unusual. She says, I was referring to the slaughter. He responds, right, well, there was, was that. that. <laughs> earlier, today, earlier today, one of the students got badly killed. <laughs> Excuse me, Sheriff McLeod. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you all. We, we just received word that some sort of tragedy has happened in the high school today. Uh, no, nothing unusual. Well, I was referring to the slaughter. Right, well, there was that. Sheriff. Earlier today, one of the students got badly killed. Well, we've heard- So they take him to see the doctor, Chuck. And he's and he's like d- taking all of his vitals and stuff, and he's like, "I've got a bad news for you. Your boy is very sick. Your boy is very sick." And he's like, "He's dead." And he's like, "Everybody's a doctor." <laughs> he's lost a massive amount of blood, and his pulse and retinal response are poor. And as you can see, there's an axe sticking out of his head. <laughs> and someone has eaten his intestines. <laughs> and I'm afraid I have some bad news. Your boy is very sick. He's lost a massive amount of blood and his pulse and retinal response are poor. And as you can see, there's an axe sticking out of his head. He's not sick, you idiot. He's dead. Oh, everybody's a doctor. (laughs) So because of that, they decide that they're going to very much go like kind of like in Frankenstein. They're going to go and hunt him because, well, he killed my son. So I'm going to kill him. Chuck is going to come kill him. Meanwhile, back at. His back at Johnny's house. <laughs> There's just so many funny things happening here. He comes home and his mother is like, I've got, I've made lunch or whatever. And he's like, mom, I told you I can't eat that stuff anymore. And she's like, oh, go into the kitchen. And there's just a little kid sitting on the, on the counter. And she's like, I picked him up at the grocery store. And he, Johnny's like, you can't just pick up kids from the grocery <laughs> store. And Eddie shows up and Eddie's upset that he almost ate him. And the parents are like, that wasn't very nice of you, son. I expect you to apologize. And so he does. And then uh, Eddie says, okay. And then the mom's like, still buds, still buds. Like, it's just so good. Uh-huh. There's I one love moment. it. So... Big Chuck shows up, finds out that they have little Chuck. Well, first is like, you know, hey, dad, we're here to kill your son again or whatever, you know. And dad's like, uh, sweetheart, they want to talk to Johnny. So she takes out a shotgun. Yeah. And he's like, you're not going to shoot me. And then she she does a warning shot and she goes, I might. Yeah, mom. Yeah, mom. It's so good. This movie is awesome. Excuse me. You wouldn't shoot me. I might. Now get out of my house. Rockcliffe, your manhood. All right, ma. That gets him to leave for now. Right. And Johnny is just really upset because he's like, the whole reason I came back was to take her to the prom. So he's got to fix this. Meanwhile, 
Missy is at the hair salon. She's talking to some idiot and she's just like, oh my God, I almost didn't go. But my mom found a place that dyed my shoes and my purse the same color as my dress. So now I can go. Uh Somebody says something about Johnny and she's like, I was just being nice to him because, well, he did die for me. Uh You know? And then he shows up at the salon and she's very embarrassed. And she's like, you ate someone. Do you understand that? Yeah. And he's like, well, I died for you. I, I took a bullet for you. You may not know this, Missy, but I ate Chuck for you. And Meanwhile- then the friend is like, God, my boyfriend won't even pump gas for me. <laughs> you may not know this, Missy, but I ate Chuck for you. God, my boyfriend won't even pump gas for me. So... Good. And it does kind of win her over to realize that the reason he's behaving the way he's doing, he, the reason he's behaving the way he is and he's doing the things he's doing is because he loves her so much. And she kind of softens to this and they are having a conversation outside now when the mob shows up and her sheriff dad. Well, first, like people are judging them as they walk down the, the, the street, uh-huh. a living girl with a dead guy, you know. White girl with a black guy. Yeah, and Big big Chuck says, Tramp, zombie lover, whore of the undead. Yes. He explains, I would die happy if I could just have one dance with you at the prom. That's all I want. That's why I came back. Right. And so they're making out. (laughs) And this is when Big Chuck arrives and he says all that stuff. And that is when her father shows up. Yeah, the sheriff. Now, her father won't stand for violence in his streets. He's like, Johnny, I'm going to take you home, and the rest of you need to get the fuck out of here. And it seems like her father's being reasonable. But then, when he drops- Her dad, by the way, is the reporter from Angels in the Outfield, just FYI. I've seen him in other things. He is an actor. That's what he is. (laughs) Forever in my eyes. Ouch. So they go to his house- and he sits down and they, they go to have dinner with the family and he they so they can talk about this relationship between their kids. And, of course, we know Johnny won't eat any of the food. So the mom tells him, can you go get some orange juice from the kitchen? And he goes and he opens the fridge and there's just a dead guy that falls out of the fridge, calls to his mom for help. And his mom's like, oh, I got him at the morgue. They practically giving them away. <laughs> What the hell is this? A body. I know it's a body. Who put it here? I did. You did? Thought you might like a snack. A snack? What are we, the Manson family now? Where did you get this body? Found it. You found it? I was at the mortuary. They're practically giving them away. Mom, they don't give bodies away at the mortuary. I sure like beans. <laughs> Meanwhile, everybody else is sitting out at the table and the dad's like, I sure like beans. (laughs) Well, the dog starts dragging this corpse out. And so he has to take care of that. (laughs) But ultimately, what the sheriff is trying to say is that, uh, listen, I'm not going to kill you. I'll let you slide on the whole eating Chuck thing. But you got to get out of town. You need to be on the first bus out of town. The parents are like, that sounds reasonable. But Johnny won't accept it, and neither will Missy, because they need to go to prom together. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he has another dream. I think I think maybe the father hits him, and he gets knocked out. Yeah, uh-huh. And so now he has another dream, 
where he e- he eats Big Chuck, who's making fun of him the whole time. For, yeah, taking so long and not doing a good enough job eating him. But then, when he's about to finish eating Big Chuck, Big Chuck turns into Missy. Missy. And she's like, you were going to eat me, weren't you? And he's like, oh my god, no, and... Don't you understand? I came back just for you. And then she's like, but I want you to. Uh-huh. So the next time he sees her, which, by the way, he's planning on giving her the gift from when they were little. So he has it with him when he goes to pick her up and he climbs up her window. And they're, like, hugging. And he's thinking to this, I want you to eat me thing. And he can't help himself. And he bites her in the shoulder. Or almost does. Well, he go he puts his mouth on her shoulder and she freaks out. And and he's, like, apologizing, and she's like, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay. Like, she also kind of doesn't want to upset things, mm-hmm. even though she knows she can't have him eat her, obviously. Yeah, but she's he's just like, I can't take you to the prom. I need to go and die, because uh-huh. this is not good. And so she's distraught over this. And her father is forcing her to go to the prom with Buck. So. Outside, Eddie, Eddie tries to convince him to eat Buck. Yeah, so... As Buck and Missy are walking into the prom, Buck realizes that she's not happy. She only wants to go with Johnny. And as they're having this discussion, Eddie and Johnny are over on the side. And Eddie's like, I can't believe I didn't think of this before. It is the most perfect, most simple plan. It'll get you into the prom with Missy without any problems. And he's like, what? And Eddie's like, eat Buck. Yeah. But he won't do it. And he's and he makes a good argument. He's like, you're already going to hell. That's obvious. Why not do it? What the hell are you doing? No, no. What the hell are you doing? I'm leaving. I can't take Missy to the prom. I just tried to eat her. Well, then get ready to say, Eddie, you're a genius. Why? Why? Because I solved your problem. I know how you can go to the prom with Missy without having to worry about eating her. You do? Mm-hmm. My plan is so perfect, so simple. What is it? You ready? Yes. Eat Buck. Are you crazy? Hear me out, all right? Let's look at this logically. Your biggest fear is that if you go to the prom with Missy, you might end up eating her. Not if you're already full. Eddie, come on. If you eat Buck, Missy's going to need a date to the prom. You'll be full and you'll live longer. Would you be serious? Oh, I am serious. I'm very, very serious. Johnny, Johnny, you're already going to hell for all eternity, so what do you care? Dr. Bronson picks him up. Because in the meantime, Dr. Bronson has been developing this formula to reanimate dead tissue... And in the process, finds a way to euthan (laughs) and euthan living tissue instead. And they turn a full-grown chicken into a little chick. And his nurse wife, whatever, is like, you could make a lot of money with this as a new fountain of youth serum. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to, to pick up Johnny saying he has a cure for him. Okay, great. So Johnny can do his whole thing there's a whole scene where they are coming in with like torches and a giant tree trunk just like out of frankenstein and the doctor is like they want to kill you but trust me i need to kill you much more (laughs) yeah and he's like there isn't enough time for anesthetics what oh he's already given her the the gift at this point did he yeah he already gave her the gift what we find out it's a heart-shaped locket with their pictures in it from when they were in first grade it was really cute Okay. I'm totally off base, so just let's get that in there right now. Yeah, the doctor's like, this kind of sucks for you, huh? (laughs) 
Yeah, I understand. So he's strapping him down. He's going to end up taking all of his flesh. And um, when, they, when they're calling for the zombie, he's like, can you describe the zombie? <laughs> but Eddie knows that something's wrong, that he's been taken. Oh, because Johnny tells him, get Missy and bring her because I'm going to be cured. And so Eddie ends up punching Buck. Yes. Knocking him out and then taking Missy. And so they show up to this place as well. And when the doctor is downstairs dealing with the mob, they're upstairs and they're helping him escape. Yes. So then they get him back to the graveyard. And it's funny because the the mob is still coming after him and they're like, hurry, hurry. And his name is Murray. But I don't know why they didn't do that. Hurry, Murray. But yeah, (laughs) it was a missed opportunity. So they get him into the graveyard, and but the mob is still coming after them. And Murray is like, hey, he died for her. Would you have done that? And the father's like, of course, because the father's there at this point. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's like, of course I would. And he's like, would you have come back to the dead, come back from the dead for her? And he's like, well, I. And then he's like. <laughs> Would you have eaten somebody for her? And he's like, no. And so now, like, they all think that he's this great guy. Yeah, this respect they have for the lengths he was going to go for her because he loves her. Uh, and so the father's like, then by God, they're going to dance. And they, like, put on music for them. And they uh-huh. have their one final dance. It As was the he's dance. falling apart. He had waited for since the first grade. And then he dies. And she puts the locket over his neck gives it to him and i was like why would you do this like you got to keep it to remember he's gonna die he doesn't need it like you know what i mean it's important it is important to the story later so he shows up in heaven and the guy at the gate is like what the hell you were supposed to be here four days ago Uh uh-huh and he's like yeah sorry and he's like well the truth is you weren't supposed to die somebody messed up he, the guy was supposed to slip on coffee. And so he's just like, it's time you were on your way to where you belong. So you're thinking he's going to go to hell. Uh-huh. But then he goes back to the point where he dies for her. He jumps in front of the bullet, just like he did before, knowing full well he's going to die this time and doesn't care. Uh-huh. The coffee still doesn't enter into it until in the commotion when Eddie hits him over the head, he knocks the coffee over. And Johnny's like, oh. Now the coffee knock- gets knocked over, but he's going to die anyway. And just as they're doing this whole thing again, where he's going to die and he professes his love for her, she's like, wait a minute. When she's looking for a bullet wound, you weren't shot. I'm like, what? And she pulls out the locket that she put on him. Now there's a, a bullet that's been lodged into it. It hits the thing it up. wearing. She opens it up and sees the pictures of them. Okay. Think of the context that Missy is seeing this in. It's creepy as fuck. It is. I agree. It's really fucking creepy. Yeah, he did jump in front of a bullet to save her, but that just implies he walks around all day wearing a locket with her as a first grader in it. Yes. All day. It's creepy as shit. We're not supposed to think about it that way. Uh Uh-huh. But so he says, it's all true, you know, and I ended up with her and I wouldn't have changed a thing. No, actually, I would have eaten Buck. Yeah, uh uh-huh. It's great. And the movie ends that way. It's a simple, silly comedy. So simple. But it's so, I love that, I love the balance of dark shit with just absolute silly comedy. Right. I love it. His parents are fantastic. The doctor's fantastic. 
Like, everyone's really good in this. Yes. Everybody was obviously having a lot of fun. Uh Uh-huh. It's great. So what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes, then? Oh, I'm sure it's miserable. Was it, like, 17? It's 14. Yeah. Out of 22 reviews. No Metacritic, but it does have a cinema score of C-. So wrong. So you think it's underrated? Extremely. Okay, what would you give it? I'm going to give it a 75. I was going to give it a 78. Okay. Look, th- there's not, there's no production value going right. on We're in this no movie. no delusion that it's going to win any Oscars or anything like that. <laughs> but it's so much fun. It's so fun. I laugh every time I watch it. It's so silly and cute and adorable and dark and I love it. And listen, let's address this right here, right now. A dark comedy zombie movie. We didn't like Return of the Living Dead, which is the same sort of thing. But Return of the Living Dead has really wildly fluctuating tone issues. It's not nearly as funny enough for how dark it is. And it just falls flat for us in a lot of ways. This just commits to the ridiculousness a lot stronger than Return of the Living Dead is. I'm sorry, this is a better movie. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be dismissed as this stupid comedy that you might see on TV on a Sunday afternoon sometime, Mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be the one that gets the horror fans into midnight theaters like Return of the Living Dead is. It's not that kind of movie, but I think it's better. Mm -hmm. Me too. Anyway, that is 1993's My Boyfriend's Back. Before we get into our next movie, though, Kelsey, horror trivia. Based on a book written by Jay Anson, what 2005 Supernatural remake stars Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George? Say again, sorry. Based on a book written by Jay Anson, what 2005 Supernatural remake stars Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George? trying to think of who melissa george is is she the one who won best supporting actress for what was it, the warrior or the fighter or whatever that one was i don't know it's a remake mm-hmm. based on what a book by jay anson 2005 mm-hmm. it's too long ago to be the voices what is it the amityville horror Oh, uh, 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 okay. Mm-hmm. She's uh, been in a lot of things, but I don't even recognize her. It wasn't who her. I thought it was. Yeah. That's a movie we saw. We didn't hate it as much as we thought we would. No, we disliked it pretty much a lot. <laughs> Kelsey? Yeah. In what year, in the 60s, was Night of the Living Dead released? You got a one in ten shot. Is it sixty-eight? It's sixty-eight. Good. Nice. I was like, I was really torn between sixty-eight and sixty-nine. I was like, I think sixty-nine's too late. It's nineteen sixty-eight. Good job. Cool. All right. Moving on to our next movie, 2008's Pontypool, which is a weird name for a movie, but it's named after a town in Canada. Written by Tony Burgess, based on his own novel. Directed by Bruce McDonald, starring Stephen McHattie, Lisa Houle, and Georgina Riley. What is Pontypool about? We get to hear about a zombie apocalypse, basically, through the eyes of a radio DJ and the people he works with. Yeah, it's sort of like a 
bottle episode movie where the whole thing takes place at the radio station. Yes. And it's just like these three people and how they experience this very unique zombie apocalypse. Yes. It is $4 to rent and $10 to buy on iTunes. Should people watch Pontypool? I'd say yes. Sure. I don't think it's completely successful in all of its endeavors, but I thought it was interesting. What did I say when we finished the movie? I sat there in silence for a while after the movie ended. And when I finally said something, what did I say? I kind of hate it. Yeah. I I, I didn't. I don't think I liked it. I mean, you should maybe watch it. Like, it's not like it's an awful movie or anything, but I think it thinks its writing is a lot like, say, a Leftovers or a Mad Men or something like that, where they can have people speak gibberish. That sounds really important. But the problem is, is that shows like The Leftovers and Mad Men have much better writers. <laughs> And this one doesn't. People just say things that don't make any sense and are unexplained and will remain unexplained for the entire fucking movie. And they think that makes them sort of profound, I feel. And it's really not. I thought it was fun. I would have felt just more direct, tell us what's happening. I liked it. It's semantic satiation, the movie, by the way. I brought up that concept later. We'll talk about why that is. I brought up that concept before on previous episodes of semantic satiation. It's that. But a whole movie based around that, and we'll get to why that is later on. But I think you can watch it. It's not that long. It's not, like, offensive or anything. And there's a lot of stuff that's really neat. It's just I think ultimately it let me down was my opinion on it. But you're just kind of, yeah, I see it. Yeah. I liked it. Okay. There's a lot of problems, but I liked it. You can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 2008's Pontypool. you are hearing is an actual radio broadcast. It is the only recording of the event. Roadblocks preventing people from leaving and entering the area. Everybody is under quarantine. Blood! Blood! We still do not have an official version of these events and it's very difficult at this moment to get a fix on what has happened. Oh God! They cut into our signal. Ken? And their eyes. He's looking at me. For your safety, please avoid contact with family members and restrain from the following. All terms of endearment. For greater safety, not translate this message not translate just listen to me kelsey can you get us started how does pontypool begin grant mazzy is on his way to work grant uh, mazzy by the way is played by stephen mchattie who we know as the elder night owl from watchmen among other things. But you 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 missed the intro monologue. Tell us. 
he goes on, he does this narrated speech about coincidences with the name Pontypool and looking for a cat and a woman on a bridge and the river and the bridge and the woman. They're all closely named Pontypool. Street names and birthdays and middle names, all kind of superfluous things appear related to each other. It's a ripple effect. So what does it mean? Well, it means something's going to happen. Something big. But then... Something's always about to happen. And it's just the voiceover, and we see the visualization of the voice, and it starts twisting and distorting, giving us a hint of where this movie is going to go. But it reminded me a lot of the intro to Magnolia. I remember you saying that. Which is just all about coincidences as well, and it's narrated by somebody telling a story about, hey, aren't coincidences weird? And it is in the humble opinion of this narrator that this is not just something that happened. This cannot be one of those things. This, please, cannot be that. And for what I would like to say, I can't. This was not just a matter of chance. These strange things happen all the time. But it was far more linear and easy to understand. Yeah. I don't know why this exists. Yeah, I don't get in it. In front of the movie. Like, I, the whole time I was thinking, because I know it's a radio play. They did an hour-long radio version of it. And you know what? To, to be perfectly clear with you, we didn't listen to it. But I am a little bit more intrigued as to what that would be. Every time they did something visually in this movie, I was thinking, oh, what would it be like if it was just the audio play? And, you know, it was they were trying for like a War of the Worlds sort of thing where all you hear is somebody on the radio telling you about what's going on here. And we just get the radio portions. And I, I was curious as to what that would be like and if it would intrigue me more. I enjoyed that aspect of it. But what, that we got the more behind the scenes stuff? No, that we just got it from... That it's a bottle episode. That it all takes place within the, the radio station. I'm saying that in the audio play version, as far as I'm aware, it's all just the news broadcast. Anything that's not in the news broadcast isn't in the audio play version. You right. don't get so we all don't... the external conversations I that like people that. have. And I like the extra conversations. I, I just thought that if we were going to have a play... On this whole bottle episode thing, I'd want it to be more like an episode of Night Vale. You know what I mean? And th this, it felt like they were leaning on the fact that it was a movie and that they were able to show us other things. It's almost like the restraints would have made it better, I feel. But I don't know. I didn't listen to the audio play version. But my point is, is that we kind of get a taste of that in the beginning, where it's just a radio broadcast of him talking and... Magnolia did it better. I agree. But yes, we do see him driving on the way to work. It's late night, early morning on his way to the radio station. Okay, does he fire somebody? Because my first note is you're fired, Rick. He fires his agent. Okay. Because I think what's happening here is he got fired from his station and now he has to work in this podunk town called Pontypool in Canada. Oh, Okay. And he's working with a new producer, this lady that he doesn't really know that well and doesn't really like. Right. And so he's firing his agent. That's the impression that I got. Okay. But we'll see that as like a symptom for the rest of the movie is it's not interested in explaining things to you. True. 
It just wants to tell this one story and that's and just show you exactly how it happened. Yeah. For their for for their perspective. So he's driving. I forget why he pulls over. He drops his phone, I think. Again, we have another thing, and we're like, oh god, it's gonna be an accident. It's snowing and all this stuff. So instead, he stops. He gets his phone, and then some lady walks up to his car. Yeah, in the snow. She's not wearing the proper clothing or anything. She starts hitting the window, is yelling, but then she just kind of disappears into yeah. the snow. and he's like, that's weird. But you notice he doesn't, like, he stops talking. He's like, what do you need? Can I help you with something? And then he sort of stops talking, and then she goes away. And then we get this little hint of that they're attracted to sound. We don't know exactly what they are yet, but... And he doesn't call the police. And my first thing I wrote down was, why didn't he call the police? And then that's like his question for the day. And I liked that. <laughs> I thought that that was really neat that he actually interrogated that and he did it on air with his listeners. It made him a much more intriguing person to me. Through a series of conversations, we learned that he's kind of an asshole. He's kind of a dick. He's a dick to the new producer. He's a dick to the Stormwatch guy. Yeah, kind of like a shock jock type. Yeah, but he's not that shocking. No, which was kind of uh, is kind of a disappointment to me. He's just irritating. He's just an ir- yeah. He's just an, a crank. Yeah, a cranky old man. But there's another girl in the sound booth, the one who does the call screening, I guess. Yeah, and she's the she seems assistant to like producer him a lot. or something like that. Yeah, like she looks up to him or something. So we have Sydney Breyer, who is his producer, Lisa Hool, and Laurel Ann Drummond, played by Georgina Riley, who looks a lot like early Anna Ferris. She looks like somebody else to me. I I couldn't put my finger on it, but she looks like a younger somebody else to me. So she's got one of those faces. Yeah, uh-huh. But th- these are our three main characters that we're going to get the most of on camera throughout this entire movie. And he tells his producer, I piss people off to grab them. They listen to me and then they tell others how much I piss them off. And then they listen to me and then they tell how much people and they're all hooked. Actually, I do know, Sydney. I am trying to piss a few people off because that's how it's done. Simple as that. You see, a pissed-off listener is a wide-awake listener, and he ain't gonna change the station. In fact, he may just call his pissed-off brother and get him to listen, too. And then his pissed-off brother, he might call his pissed-off, I don't know, preacher. And that, Lady Briar, is how you build a loyal, listening audience. And it's funny because... I wonder if there's a... So, there's a certain morning talk show that because all you can hear in the morning is talk shows unless you listen to uh 93.1 here in Cal- southern california like otherwise you're you're listening to talk shows so you have to pick which ones you're actually interested in uh-huh. and i've got two shows that i kind of flip back and forth between and there's one that i actually enjoy for the most part but sometimes they do stupid humor that's beneath me <laughs> <laughs> And then there's another one that most of my friends and family listen to, and they all think they're great. And they do talk about things that I'm actually interested in, but I don't actually like them. Uh-huh. And I wonder if they do that. They just put out stupid, annoying-ass opinions to keep people pissed off and listening. Well, I don't know. To bring back that wound, it didn't work when we when we said bad things about Return of the Living Dead. That's true. People weren't like, oh, I got to hear more about these controversial opinions that they have. No, we just got some hate for it. (laughs) 
But she explains that this is not the same thing as a city. These, this is a small town. Uh-huh. By the way, they're in Canada. Yes, Ontario, Canada. <laughs> and in small towns, people are proud. And they won't listen to you if they don't like listening to you or something. Right. Then we hear them and yeah. Then we hear a story about the cat honey. Yeah. That's missing. Which her name is a term of endearment. This is kind of the beginning of where the story tries to connect a lot of things. And for the most part, it's just confusing. Yeah, it is. Especially with this whole term of endearment thing. Which kind of is true and then kind of isn't. Right, but it, it, it'll it come back in the end. Uh, but I don't understand what the movie is trying to say. Because it's almost like the movie is saying communicating for understanding is a bad thing and it's going to infect our culture. So communicating to confuse is better? Is the solution? And terms of endearment are bad? Like, what's the movie saying? Here's what I got out of it. Okay. And it, I kind of had to, I really had to clean it up for myself. Uh-huh. Like, I had to push a lot of junk out of the way to come to this conclusion. Okay. But what I think it was trying to say is that you need to be careful of the things that you say and the things that you put out there. Because the things that you say affect everyone that hears them. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the mimetic nature of communication in today's day and age. How things transmit from person to person, and they can spread like wildfire, even lies. You know, they say lies get halfway around the world before the truth can get it can get its boots on or something like that, whatever that phrase is. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. The mimetic nature of communication in today's age. So you have to be very careful with the things that you say. First of all, that's the main, I think that's just, that's the overarching thesis, which is real, real loose. But all the um, all the crap that you had to push aside kind of contradicts that. It's weird. But also, but there are very specific things that this movie wants to indict. And it does not do it well, because as you just said, a lot of it contradicts itself. But what I think their main points are, is that when you're talking to people you care about, when you want to, like, tell them you love them, that should be a serious moment as opposed to just, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Uh-huh. Like, when you say it, you need to mean it. Uh-huh. If you say it too much, then it means nothing. Uh-huh. And then people say it to everyone, and so it means nothing. But so why is understanding, actually understanding the concept in your head, why is that how this transmits? If you're trying to say that you need to mean it, But then if somebody understands your meaning, they get infected? Like what? Because if you use a word too much, like the word honey, use it too much, Uh then the person next to you is going to start using it as their term of endearment. Then the next person is going to use it as their term of endearment. And it's going to lose all meaning. But shouldn't losing meaning be the thing, by that standard, shouldn't it losing its meaning be what spreads the virus as opposed to it having meaning spreading the virus? Agreed. I totally agree. Why? I think the reason that they used the whole, like, forget it, misunderstand it, confuse yourself. Why I think they used that as the um, antidote Mm -hmm. is because 
we need to go back to a time when we used language that was important to us. So forget all the shit that somebody else has told you. Okay. And learn it for yourself. This, by the way, is called semantic satiation. I mentioned it in the first half of the episode. It's the idea that the more you hear or say or write or read something, the less meaning it has for you. And it starts to become gibberish nonsense. First time I ever experienced that was in kindergarten with the word marshmallow. I said marshmallow so many times that it it sounded like gibberish to me. And I held on to that experience for a while until somebody actually told me what it was. And I'm like, oh, uh, 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 I love this concept. It's a great concept. And this is that, the movie, which we'll get into when it comes up in the plot line. So it's kind of frustrating that I'm not totally on board when I finally got a movie all about this wonderful concept. See, what I feel <laughs> is the bigger problem is that they had, it wasn't so much, I don't think they had a clear set of what they wanted to say. Mm -hmm. I think it came more from, this is a scary concept, this looks cool, this is fun, it's creepy when they say that. And they put it all together, and then they were like, oh, that doesn't really match with what we were originally trying to say. And they just said, fuck it? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what I think happened. Yeah, I think you might be right. And to, to, to wrap us back into the plot here, I did write down around this time when the camera is just spinning around these characters, and I'm like, this camera needs to stop spinning. I know you can't do a lot because you're stuck in this one place, but stop spinning. I also wrote, what the fuck is this script? I said earlier, it's like it's trying to be scripts like Leftovers and Mad Men, which are very poetic scripts for shows, uh, but also examples are Hannibal or uh, Legion. These are these are shows that turn their scripts into a sort of poetry where they're not not everything everyone says is directly translatable into a concept without metaphor. And so it's it's kind of poetic and you have to think about what they're saying and you have to flow along with the conversation. And it's almost like this script was trying to do that because so many things they say, you have no direct understanding of what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> but that's the only element of this script that matches those. It's not intriguing. I don't feel like I'm flowing along with it. I feel like it's running me over more than anything. See, I I kind of side with the with the director here. Like, I see the cool shit that he wanted to do. Uh huh. It just doesn't work together as a story. But I feel like it's at least super interesting. Like, I'm like, I I really like what you tried to do. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> right, 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 right. Which is why when I said before, I think I hate it. <laughs> it wasn't like a oh god, I hated that. It was like. I feel like I like I feel like I'm supposed to like it. like it's supposed to be something that's up my alley, but I think it it just misses that alley and rams into a wall or something. I don't know what it is. But yeah, so they're having conversations. They're talking about, like you say, his nature is a shock jock and who he should be pissing off and you shouldn't fuck with the guy in the traffic helicopter. We realize that his producer, Sydney, can't get him reined in, can't control him and can't get him to shut up. But occasionally he'll humor her. Yes. I'm just going to skip a bunch of stuff because a lot of really pointless shit happens. And I'm going to yep. skip right to when, what's his name in the sunshine shopper? <laughs> Ken Loney. Ken. 
who is their storm guy who's supposed to be up on a chopper but is not. Guy, yeah, uh-huh, the sunshine chopper. Yes. And then who later will discover, I'm just going to say this now. Yeah. We discover is a pedophile? Yeah. What yep. the fuck was that? Yep. I wrote down, why did Ken have to be a pedophile? What is that? I really liked him as a character. I thought he was funny. It's them trying to have a shocking script. Yeah. And for, and for and no reason. For no reason. Out of nowhere, you will never meet Ken. Never. He is not an actual person you will see. And later, she brings up the fact that she thinks he's a pedophile. She doesn't know, but she thinks. And She's I'm like, like, oh, we just kept our kids away from him at parties and stuff. Why? So she wasn't even feeling strongly about that. Why was that in there? For what purpose? It, it comes out of nowhere. Especially since the-, the And it accomplishes the, nothing. The movie does something here with Ken that I imagine the radio play would do, which is get you to care about characters that you don't actually get to see. You don't actually get to meet. You only meet the characters in the radio play through the radio broadcast. So getting you to care about these characters is an accomplishment. And by the end of Ken's storyline, you care about him. And then they undermine that. Yes. The only character that you don't meet but care about. <laughs> and they undermine it. Yes. It's it's baffling that they would do that. I Yeah. Weird, weird choice there. Anyway, anyway. So Ken, who you... Like I said, you do kind of like, he's the one that tells them all of their information, except for a few people who also call in. Otherwise, all of their information is coming from Ken, because Ken is sitting up on top of a hill somewhere where he has a really good view of, again, it's a small town, and he is the one that tells them, I don't know what's going on, it looks like people are drunk, even the police seem drunk. Oh, my God. People are trampling everyone. Yeah. Some kind of hysteria is happening in our town. I'm seeing military vehicles. Like, he starts to send all this information in, but the producer doesn't want to cause any undue uh, havoc. So she basically cuts him off and says, hey, this folk song group is here. Yes, Lawrence and the Arabians. <laughs> and Grant does not want to do it. He's like, uh, don't you want to fucking know what Ken's seeing right now? And she's like, no, I don't. Uh, I would like to hear this group who has f- driven here to see us. Mm-hmm. She also tells him the secret about Ken because he doesn't believe that Ken's up in a chopper. In that weather. And so she tells him he's not. He's in his car. Because up he on top makes of the fun hill. of him. Right. <laughs> he but makes like, fun of Ken. And then you she... can't get this guy to shut up. Why would you tell him the secret? Because it makes him feel guilty. I guess. But then why would you want him to feel guilty about shaming a pedophile? What right. Right. is going on with your script? <laughs> anyway, this group comes in and they sing a song. And at some point they get stopped. And the little girl is talking, and then she starts to repeat herself, and then she starts to say, pra, 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 pra. Okay, now that was Tony Burgess, Maureen Hinkle, Nancy Freethy, Jay Pullman, and Colin Pullman singing The Neffwood Desert. I can't remember how it ends. I can't remember how it ends. How what ends, Farage? It just keeps starting over and over over and over and it's not called the lawrence and the table is it not anymore no pra 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 
and she can't stop. That is a really scary idea. Yes, 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 yes. This idea just, it's existentially frightening. <laughs> it is terrifying, the, these first symptoms. They're terrifying on an existential level. And the director, first of all, we should say, they're not zombies. Not they're, really. They're what he calls, and get ready for this pretentious bullshit, he calls them conversationalists. Okay, that's really shitty. Right? That's really shitty. And he describes the three stages of the virus this way. So we're seeing the first stage. The first stage is you might begin to repeat a word. Something gets stuck. And usually it's words that are terms of endearment like sweetheart or honey. Not all the time, but usually. But the idea of this phrase or or concept being stuck in your head, the way they describe it, and you and it and it getting louder and louder and to the point where you can't carry on a normal conversation and you can only think about this one thing is terrifying. It's it's especially scary because the performances here are quite good. Uh-huh. It shows the person aware I can't stop saying this word. Especially and, and the they next can't. person that we see that gets infected. And you can just see it on their face, like and they like cover their mouths and they're trying to say uh-huh. something else and they can't. But get this. The second stage is your language becomes scrambled and you can't express yourself properly. This is an extension of that same idea. The third stage this is a huge leap. The third stage, you become so distraught at your condition that the only way out of the situation you feel as an infected person is to try to chew your way through the mouth of another person. That's a huge leap. That's really dumb. And it really, really dampens this dread that you can convey through these first two symptoms that are really, really effective. And it got me the first time I understood what these symptoms were. I was like, oh, God, man, that's terrifying. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, Lawrence and the Arabians, this little girl's infected. They get them ushered out. And we get this. And, well, it's really interesting because I forget what she's doing, but the producer is distracted. Uh Uh-huh. And so Grant, she doesn't notice that it's happening. Yeah, and Grant is super affected by it. Grant is like, "Did you just? Did you see that?" And she's like, "What?" And like, she just uh-huh. d- didn't know what it was. And it's interesting. They're trying to get a hold of Ken, I think, while this is happening. It's really interesting because Grant has been kind of the hard ass, and she's been the caring one, and uh-huh. he's the one that's like, "Ah," uh, and she's just like, "Fuck it," they, uh-huh. you know. They don't seem to realize that they are at the epicenter of the of the li- night of the living dead. Right. Eventually, something else happens. They hear some more information. People, oh, that's right. People are calling in, and Grant's starting to get frustrated because Grant's like, "This can't be true." Right. And These then people things- from like the BBC are calling in. They're they're oh, that's right. The BBC. Yes. Nigel Healing. Yes, and he's like, we've heard that you're being completely quarantined. He's like, that's fucking stupid. And so he starts to not believe what he's been hearing. Uh And he says, I think people are just fucking with us. But then, then they start to get more calls. They're inundated with calls. And the people that are calling can't talk to them. And that's creeping them out. And then it's like we get like a cut some time has passed and we find out that 75 people have died. Yes. They've officially found out that 75 people have died. We find out that the groups of the people are chanting things, that there's herds of people, they make sounds that they hear. Then we get a call from Ken. 
Yeah. Who is now hiding in a silo. Yeah, like a grain silo. And he's crying and he's like, yes, I'm here. I'm not safe. They're running after me. Uh, there's no reaching any sort of police anymore. I've seen things that will ruin me for the rest of my life, and I am scared. Yeah, can you tell us what happened? What's happening there, Ken? I'll, I'll tell you this. I just saw... I've seen things today that are going to ruin the rest of my natural life, Grant. And I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared. Was the voice of Ken anybody famous? Because he sounded super familiar. He was played by Rick Roberts, but you don't know him. Oh, well. He explains that he's seen people biting other people, carrying them to the ground in their mouths, and then their one gets in. <laughs> and he's saying, like, he has no hands. He's looking at me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think he can move. <laughs> So I'm going to get closer. Meanwhile, Grant is like, no. I don't think that's a good idea, Ken. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not go closer <laughs> to him. Uh, I wouldn't do that, Ken. And what does the guy do? Do you remember? He holds the phone up to his mouth because there's just air escaping, but it sounds like there's a voice somewhere in his breath. And it's like this... How does he describe him? It's, it's it's a baby crying. Well, no, but it's Miss Such and Such's eldest boy, and everyone knows who he is, and he's just an idiot. And but now he sounds like a baby coming out. He's just exhaling, but there's a baby voice coming out. It's like saying like "ma ma," you know, just like baby drivel. Okay, listen, and, and keep in mind, uh, uh, picture this. This is what you you're about to hear is coming from Mary Galt's. Big teenage boy, he's... Listen, 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 listen. actually happening ken this is when they get the message so they get interrupted by a broadcast from what appears to be the french canadian military we find out this way that their broadcast could be interrupted and if the french canadian military knows that this broadcast is dangerous why they don't just indefinitely interrupt the broadcast i don't know but they let them go right back on the air. And so Laurel Ann translates this from French and feeds it to Grant live as he's reading it, which is also a big mistake on behalf of the French-Canadian military because their message is as follows. Okay, we have the translation. Now I'm going to read this, reminding our listeners that the source has not yet been identified and early analysis has identified this as possibly a hoax of some kind. And I remind you that the source was not us, and indeed we do not know the source. For your safety, please avoid contact with close family members and restrain from the following. 
all terms of endearment, such as honey or sweetheart, when you talk with young children and rhetorical discourse. For greater safety, please avoid the English language. Please do not translate this message. Probably would have been best at the beginning of the message, but whatever. The point is, is that the English language is infected, but no other language. What's the explanation? There isn't one. Except that I guess you could argue English-speaking culture is... The English language is the one that's most commonly spoken all over the world. Maybe. But if it if it spreads through understanding, couldn't somebody who speaks both languages spread it to another language? Like, they don't even address that. It's yeah. just English only. Yeah. And this is, of course, when it just starts to make no sense. I'll, I'll totally admit that. There's too many contradicting threads that just do not make th- this make sense. But I still like it. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is when Grant says, I'm beginning to think this is not a joke. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. But the producer's freaking out. Uh, no, the producer's not freaking out. The producer, I think, is trying to speak, like, trying to get this to not make sense. But Grant freaks out, and he's just like, I'm sorry, but I am believing this. So he decides he's going to go somewhere or something. He has to check and see for himself that this isn't all a hoax. Right. And so she starts yelling, don't walk out on me, Grant. And it's really creepy because then a a herd, as they call it, a herd of zombies shows up yelling, don't walk out on me, Grant. Uh Uh-huh. Super creepy. Yes. Yes. Don't you walk out on me, Grant. What the hell is that? We have an enemy, sir. Orland, we got an enemy. What's going on? Very effective. I kind of wish there was more of that. This is when the chick who's been kind of looking up to him this Laurel whole time, Ann, yeah. she starts to say, missing, 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 missing. Yes. I'm going to go see if Mr. Mazzy's missing. <laughs> missing. 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 I mean, I mean, Mr. Mazzy. Mr. Mazzy's missing as in because he's not here. But what honey is in the cell booth? Yeah, I know. I just okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go. Mr. Mr. Mendez is missing Mazzy. No, no, I'm. I'm missing Mazzy. I have to. This is where we get a real intimate look at the stages of the infection. Mm Mm-hmm. It's around this time that the doctor sneaks his way into the station. Yes, by crawling in through a window. <laughs> and they did talk to him earlier, or he talked to BBC earlier. We did hear him on some other radio show at some uh-huh. point. But he's going to be manic this whole fucking movie. And he's not going to make sense, which I guess is on purpose. But it feels like that's just his way of thinking. Just the way he talks and the way he thinks is very unintelligible. Yes. And it's like he's not trying to get them to understand. But he actively is trying to get them to understand. So it's this weird sort of push and pull that I don't think works. And I think they think it works. So he gets in and they have already, without meaning to, quarantined her away from them. Yeah, because they were in the the, sound booth. The sound booth. And she's in the one where the call center. Yeah. And he tells them she doesn't know it yet, but she's hunting us. 
Yeah. Because she keeps hitting her head against the window. And they're like, what the fuck? Maybe we should go out there and help her. And he's like, no, she's hunting us. Yeah. She's listening for our sounds. As long as we're in here in a soundproof booth, we're safe. And he had never seen what happens to somebody who can't spread the disease to somebody else. Yeah, he explains she might lose track of us if she can't hear us. And that's exactly what happens. She just walks away. He, he says she's rooting for voices. They get a call from Ken. They think that Ken is going to be killed. And this is when he she's like crying. And he's like, I know, I know he was a good friend. And she's like, he wasn't a good friend. He was a pedophile. Was yeah, like, and this is all on the radio, by the way. She says, shit, that wasn't a very good obit. But I knew him for 17 years, so he mattered to me. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> This is when we see Laurel Ann. He's like, Laurel Ann has joined us again, and she's looking a little worse for wear. (laughs) Like, she's completely hurt herself trying to get in and stuff. Yeah. And then then Mazzy says, do you think they can read lips? And the doctor, who, remember, has just barely started his symptoms, is like, that is an extremely interesting question. I've not thought of that yet. See, that's the thing. I don't think he ever starts his symptoms. The, what the movie is communicating is that he's not infected, but they think he is. I think it's that he stopped speaking in English. Right, right, right. Because he realizes that English is infected. So he stops speaking in English, and then they think that's him speaking gibberish, which they think is a symptom, but it's not. He's speaking complete sentences, just not in English. And it's almost like, is this a metaphor for xenophobia and blah, 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 blah. This is when we get the thesis of the movie said out loud, in my opinion. Uh Uh-huh. It's kind of a little funny conversation. Um, Grant's like, well, should we be talking at all? And the doctor goes, probably not. Yes. It's pretty risky. So we should probably stop talking. Uh-huh. And Grant's like, but we have to get it out to the people. And this is when the doctor says, well, let's just hope your words don't destroy your world. Is this transmission itself? Uh... No, 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 no. If, if the bug enters us, it does not enter by making contact with our eardrum. No. It enters us when we hear the word and we understand it. Understand? It is when the word is understood that the virus takes hold and it copies itself in our understanding. Should we be talking about this? What are we talking about? Should we be talking at all? Well, to be safe, no, probably not. Talking is uh, risky and, uh, well, Talk radio is high risk, so uh, we should stop. But uh, we need to uh, tell people about this. People need to know. We have to get this out. Well, it's your call, Mr. Mazzy. Let's just hope what you're getting out there isn't going to destroy your world. Yep, there's the metaphor. Yes. The things you put out there infect other people. Yep. And then they spread your bullshit. Uh Uh-huh. So just be careful. There it is. I just wish the movie could have honed in on it a little bit more, made it more comprehensive across the film so it stands up to inspection. The producer ends up getting on a cell phone and calling her kids. She says, honey, and sweetheart over and over and over again. 
And I think that's supposed to be doing something. Well, I think she's saying that because she's worried about her daughter. Yeah. It's Valentine's Day, and I love you, sweetheart. You're my Valentine. All these terms of endearment, and that's dangerous. She might be communicating the illness to her daughter over the phone, but nothing comes to that. Yeah. Laurel Ann ends up vomiting blood. Oh, yeah. she Her head kind of just explodes with blood. And he's like, fascinating. I guess that's what happens when they can't transmit the disease. We get the typical tons of zombie hands on the window trying to get in. Uh That's in every zombie movie. They decide that they're going to use the zombies as like a PA system. Yes. So this is another thing that I wish they would have communicated exactly what was going on. (laughs) But they were so interested in obfuscating communication because that's the premise of the movie. So now the movie's got to kind of not make sense. It's really going to kick in at the very, very end, that concept. It's kind of frustrating. But anyway, what they're doing is they need to let people know that they're still alive in this radio station, which you have a radio broadcast. You could do it that way. But they don't. (laughs) Instead, they communicate via the PA to outside. They say they need to come up with a very simple sentence that can be communicated. Like an SOS. Yes, but communicates everything they need to communicate. And that is, Sidney Breyer is alive. So people will know, Sidney Breyer, the producer at the radio station, she's alive, we can go get her. And it, it ends up communicating through all of the conversationalists. And to spread the message. But to what end? Who knows? Because they don't fucking do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Why it's like... I'm more disappointed than anything. I don't hate the movie. I'm just disappointed. Like a parent. (laughs) There's a lot of potential here that's not realized. Yeah, which is why I'm hoping that the radio play does better. Maybe go listen to that. It's on YouTube. This is, again, the doctor starts to repeat the word breathe. Yeah. Again, maybe the beginning. And then he starts to speak in a foreign language. And immediately, the two of them, when they leave, because... Nobody else is alive in the radio station, so they so they leave him alone in the booth, and they come to the conclusion that it's only the English that's infected, so they agree that he can speak a little of French, so maybe they can communicate via French. Why they don't think, oh, that's why he's not speaking English, it's not gibberish, it's another language, because that's immediately the conversation that they're having right now, and what they use French to communicate is, do you think he's infected? Hello? He's talking another language just like fucking you are. Yes. And so it it sets forth this premise where they're really worried, they're paranoid that maybe he might be infected and so they try to keep him separate. It lasts for all of five minutes and then later on he's going to get to safety with them and then he just fucking leaves and then we never see him again. Like... (laughs) Did you not plot this movie out ahead of time? Before you wrote the script? I don't think they did. Anyway, so they're outside. They're looking for something for a way out. What are they looking for? I don't know, but they end up killing a kid. It's the Lawrence and the Arabians girl. For some reason, she's still there. Yes, she is still there. She attacks them. They end up killing her. And then, like, they kind of have an argument over who killed her. No, no. Then they have an argument I didn't kill a kid. You did. It was... 
Oh, yeah, I should say, because I have this written down, of course only the English language is infected. We knew that from the message that gets broadcast to them by the French-Canadian military, yet nobody goes back to this warning. We go the whole movie and nobody thinks, wait, what did that warning say? Now that we understand a little bit more, maybe it gave us information like the fact that it's the fucking English language that's infected. Don't use terms of endearment. Important stuff like this that they just never go back to until the very end. And it's just frustrating that you're thinking of something that the characters aren't and definitely should be. Anyway, they're surprised by the new information that the English language is infected when you were fucking told that in so many words 20 minutes ago. Anyway, the argument that they end up having about who needs to kill the doctor, that's the argument that they have. And it's effectively, you killed the girl, so now you're the killing person, you have to kill the doctor. Mm -hmm. She's like, no, 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 I killed the girl, so now you have to kill the doctor. And we got to take turns. And this is, I think I've talked about this on the show before. This is me and my brother with the TV. (laughs) Your TV was up really high and you had to manually flip a switch to turn it on and off. And so you kind of had to climb up on top of a chest of drawers and like then, and then hit the power. None of us wanted to do it. So it was always, I was always the first one to talk and that gave me a benefit, which was if my brother turned it on, I said, you turn it on, you got to turn it off. Or if I turned it on, it's like, Hey, turns, man. I turned it on. You got to turn it off. (laughs) It's that fun little argument tactic. Yes. But so then they end up not killing him because he explains, even though he's repeating the word understand. And breathe. And he's repeating several words. He tells them you have to kill the word that kills you. You have to kill all the killing. I don't fucking know. But so... The producer ends up saying the word kill over and over and over again. So Grant. Well, by this time, they fought off some conversationalists and they're stuck in another room where it's the room that the doctor got in through the window. And so he manages to just crawl out and we never see him again. That's right. They're I forgot stuck in he the leaves room. through the window again. Yes. They're stuck in the room and they end up writing on all the walls because they're in there forever. And she writes, my name is Sydney Breyer and today I killed a girl. Supposed to be poignant, I guess. And, you know, they end up writing over the whole entire room to show that time has passed. But then she gets this kill stuck in her head. And like the doctor said, you need to kill the word that's killing you. It needs to stop making sense. You need some other word to replace that word. And so he comes up with all these words that can now mean kill. Or word that kill can now mean, rather. Kill needs to mean something else. And then he's like, kill means this, kill means that, kill means the other thing. And eventually he lands on kill is kiss, kill is kiss. And she kind of responds to that. And so he repeats it over and over and over and over again until she responds, kill me. Sydney, I think you got an infected word. You're infected. Uh, but we know the word. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. No, no, no. Stop. Stop. We know the word. Okay, kill isn't kill. Sydney, kill isn't kill. It isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. It isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. Kill isn't kill. Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, okay. Kill is blue. Kill is wonderful. Kill is loving. Kill is kill is baby. Kill is kill is man's garden. Kill is beautiful morning. Kill is everything you ever wanted. Kill is kill is kill is kiss. Kill is kill is kill is kiss. Kill his kiss. 
Get it? She's saying kiss me. <laughs> yeah, that was that was unnecessary. Ugh. And later on, she has the line, oh, Mazzy, you're killing me. Really? Really? But so he's like, oh, my God, I think I just cured you. So he gets on the radio and he starts shouting, stop killing them, stop killing them. You're killing scared people. These are people we can save. And he's yelling this, and all of a sudden, everything stops. And he's like, holy shit, did it work? And, like, you're the audience, like, that couldn't have worked. And he's right. kind of like, that he's, couldn't have worked. He is babbling. Again, not even trying to make sense, because the whole point is diluting understanding of language. So the script is diluting your understanding of it. But I don't think that makes for a good fucking movie. So he explains, you know, you smell fear and you pounce on people, but you really need to learn to... Uh, understand each other and wait and listen and care. He's like, and after all, it's just another day in Pontypool. And then the town blows up. (laughs) Yeah, they've been counting down 10, 9, 8 over the loudspeaker. And then the whole thing blows up. I, I mean, my notes here are these fucking explosions while he's trying to explain everything. Next note. What in the fuck is all this? Next note. Let me guess. Not understanding is the point. Like, come on. Then we get post-credits, which apparently was originally pre-credits, but too many people were confused by it, so they put it post-credits, so it's a stinger now. It's them in black and white, all dressed up, looking like cool assassins or whatever. Super And having weird. this conversation. Let's get out of here. Where are we going? I can't play by the establishment of rules any longer. My patience is worn thin. We're breaking the limits, stealing cars. Leaving the world behind to figure out what they believe is black and white. But what about? What about? What about what about? It's not a good anti-establishment way to begin a question. My name? My name, too. Johnny Deadeyes. Hmm. Lisa the Killer. Where are we going, Johnny? To a new place that isn't even there yet. And then? Then we steal the loot and knock boots in the free world, baby. Okay. Okay, baby. Okay, okay. This is interesting. I read a theory about this. It's actually kind of interesting. It is that this is not a metaphor. This is real. They survived the explosion, and they're trying to go around curing people from this so-called language apocalypse. So it's almost post-apocalyptic at this point. And they need to communicate in a way that's improvisational, but that can still communicate their meaning. And so that's why they're talking to each other this way, but they'll sometimes start to slip and he calls her baby. And then she says baby back and he hushes her. And when that happens, color starts to come back into the image. It's almost like when they're obfuscating their language, it's all in black and white and we're confused and we're not sure what's going on. That's safety for them. But when they start to use these, like, terms of endearment, when they start to use things that start to make more sense, the color comes bleeding back into the world, which is danger. I kind of love that concept 
but it took somebody else explaining that because the movie was not interested in making that make sense at all. And it ends with a last line of something about the craziness that happened, and then they go, Pontypool. Pontypool. Well, we have have all the radio stations playing over the credits, and Nigel comes back on. And this is sort of the last thing we hear before this stinger, is Nigel from the BBC saying, and that's the latest from Kandahar. Other other news. French-Canadian riot police have successfully contained the violent uprising in the small town in Ontario, Canada, Pontypool. Pontypool, and he just keeps repeating Pontypool, which tells us that no, they did not successfully contain it, which is why there is this language apocalypse going yes. on. Yes, relatively neat. Yes, I think there were a lot of really interesting ideas happening here, mm-hmm. and I thought that some of the ways that they decided to film it and keeping it all from their one perspective. I really enjoyed a lot of elements. It just unfortunately couldn't pull it all together to make sense. So what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? Since it's such an interesting take on a zombie film, I'm going to guess it's higher than I would, than that. I, 64? It has an 84 on Rotten Tomatoes, which again means 84% of professional reviews had an overall positive outlook on the movie. Doesn't say how positive, just overall positive. The consensus statement is witty and restrained. Really? You think this is fucking restrained? Craig, come on. You! You are fucking with me! You are fucking with my head! And you! Don't you fuck with me! But still taut and funny. Don't think it's as funny as you think it is. This Pontypool is a different breed of low-budget zombie film. I'm sure it's a different breed. I'll give you that. Yeah, I thought it was different. It is a low-budget zombie film. But the Metacritic average... Keeping in mind that 84% of reviewers overall liked the movie, the average actual review score is 54. So what do you think about that? I think 84 is a little high. A little bit, yeah. I was going to give it a 70. Yeah, see, I wouldn't go that high. I, I definitely would be in the 50s. Really? Yes, 100%. I think 54 makes a lot of sense to me. I think it just, I think it was at least interesting to watch. I th- Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense, but fucking zombies don't make sense. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it felt it's kind of uber like, pretentious. It's and- kind of like with the time travel movie, like, come on. How you gonna how you gonna be mad about the fact that they couldn't make it make sense that something totally impossible didn't make make sense? Well, they picked a topic all about understanding and how you win is by not understanding things. So the movie almost goes out of its way to have you not understand what's going on at any given point. And that's some people may think that's neat. I just think that that's a bad idea for a film. It's a cool concept, but now it's a film that's just annoying to watch. See, I thought it was fun, so I give it a lot, a lot of points here for being unique. I understand and interesting. <laughs> Get it? I understand. <laughs> I didn't mean that, but no, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. It just missed the mark for me, and I, I don't think it's a bad movie. I, I was just disappointed. So sorry out there to all the Pontypool lovers. I in my group chat, 
that I have with a bunch of my high school friends. I said, I think I hated Pontypool. And the only reaction I got was one of those tear emojis from Bob, (laughs) our only guest on the show so far. We're going to have more guests in the future. Don't worry. Anyway, that was 2008's Pontypool, thus ending our Valentine's Day week. 1993's My Boyfriend's Back in 2008's Pontypool. What are we watching next week? So next week, we're going to do a double feature. We're doing it, guys. We're doing it. This has been uh, recommended to us by several people. I only have three names written down, but it's been several people and our search bars don't work anymore, apparently. So this took me a long time to find names. But if you're one of the people who wanted us to watch Suspiria... That's finally happening. I know for a fact that Princess 13 KLT wanted us to watch it. Nick L wanted us to watch it. The Chickapedia wanted us to watch it. So we're doing it. We're watching both the Dario Argento original and the more recent remake. Kind of. quotes with a question mark. Yeah. If you remember when we had our spoiler-free thoughts about this, I really didn't like it. Yeah, Chris hated it. I really didn't like it. I thought it was pretty... Maybe I thought everyone losing their minds over what's her face playing three different roles was way overblown. Why did they do that? And they definitely shouldn't have. It's the wrong decision. You have like a main character who I can't take seriously because I know that they're buried under all that makeup. It's very obvious. And it just. Well, we're going to watch it. And I think the artsy dancing remind we just watched. We just watched Next in Fashion on Netflix. Which is a fashion design competition. competition. And one of my big complaints about the show is that all their judgment, just like fashion in general, is also fucking arbitrary. That's kind of what we do. There's a lot of stuff that we talk about that's very arbitrary. But like the interpretive dance stuff. Oh, this is magical and inspired. Is it though? Or is it just random? Anyway. Oh, I don't want to be the bad guy here. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be watching a double feature of Suspiria next week. So get ready for it, motherfuckers. (laughs) Until then, you can always reach us on our website, podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at podcemetery. Don't forget, if you want to mail us some physical stuff, whatever that may be, we do have a box now that's on our website, but I'll also give it to you now. 5753 East Santa Ana Canyon Road, Suite G, number 290 in Anaheim Hills, California, 92807. I'll also put that in the episode description. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are the biggest help there, sharing us with friends is even bigger. And you know what? Thank you all for listening in the GD first place. We love each and every one of you, especially on this lovely, lovely Valentine's day. My sweethearts, my honeys. I hope I didn't infect you, (laughs) especially with our sickness. Jeez. (laughs) Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been pod cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Do we really want to provide a genocide with elevator music?
fall addicted to the sacred place. This ain't a dream I can't escape. Molens and fangs that are picking up bones. Spirits moaning among the tombstones. How do I end the show again? Anyway. anyway.